And new. Does everybody have the two handouts? Everybody has the two handouts? Uh, first, on behalf of everybody here, I want to thank Brenda for preparing the movies in there. And, and of course, everybody knows that she does regularly. And we enjoy everybody that comes to our home Bible study, but we really enjoy Brenda. <laughs> She's she really is a big help every week in bringing refreshments. And of course, she don't just bring refreshments. She brings everybody. She brings Brenda's refreshments there. But everything's exceptionally good. Um, look at the last uh, chart I gave you. And this was research conducted at the Institute of American Church Grove, Pasadena, California. By the way, we take the publication Church Grove, which is very good. We get it monthly, and it has some very, very good information in it. Uh, over 10,000 people were asked the question, what was responsible for your coming to Christ and the church? And isn't it interesting, uh, door knocking, 1% to 2%, and campaigns, crusades, revivals, one half of 1%. Let me tell you a couple of experiences I've had. And I was, uh, you know, I looked at that and I wasn't surprised in the slightest. I've been on a number of door knocking campaigns where we hit every door in the community and every door in the big city. Uh, when Barbara and I went to Jessup, Georgia and, and planted a church there, we had a campaign. Uh, we had an excellent speaker, a fellow by the name of James Watkins. I don't know if anybody's ever heard him, outstanding speaker. And uh, we hit every door in the community. And during the, the week that he was there, we counted about 12 people that you know came to the the services and after everybody left and the the dust had settled and all there was about a couple that came for the next few weeks and then that was gone and so we did this a couple of times uh in the four years that we were were at jessup and that's uh, you know we were strangers and we knocked on the doors and and we didn't have now this is it's not that way in every situation. One thing, let me mention this about door knocking campaigns. They do not work in good neighborhoods. They do not work among the affluent, among your middle class. Where they do work is in poor socioeconomic situations. And what we found out, for example, I mentioned about the 12 people that we did have visit, all of them were from the, the poorest part of the community that uh, that it, they, people there are more receptive, they're more willing to talk. Uh, in areas where people work and the man and wife maybe are both working or the guy has a demanding job and they have a life entanglements in many directions, they tend to look on it as an invasion of their privacy. And it's uh, the, I know, put yourself now, most of us in that category, on Saturday morning, you've worked all week, you're going to go to church on Sunday, or you've got something else, and you really don't want somebody knocking on your door trying to engage you in a serious discussion or something like that. Uh, and so it, I'm just saying that all the statistics show that it is one of the least uh, effective things. In Huntsville, Alabama, we hit every door in that entire city. We had a man by the name of Ted Kale, who's an outstanding speaker. And we rented the Civic Auditorium. Uh, during the course of the week, we had 13 baptisms. All of them were people that were already coming to one of the churches, whether it was children or somebody that was already coming. 
there was not a single one of the baptisms that were a result of somebody that, that had not been going to church uh, anywhere. Uh, when you see the Billy Graham crusade and you see all these people that respond, I guarantee you most of them are in church somewhere. Most of them are in church. And then when they follow up on those crusades of the people that respond, the following week, less than 3% of them will be in church anywhere. I'm talking about the people that go to the crusade that are not going to church. Less than 3% of them will be in, that's the very, the very next week. So on a percentage basis, this is uh, the various ways that people get led. And obviously, what just stands out and smacks you right in the face here? 75 to 90%. I, I believe 90% would be more accurate because I believe the people that go to some of these other things, it's because a friend has invited them. Now, if you don't want to, don't. But think about it anyway. Everybody here is, uh, is a Christian. Who led, how did you become a Christian? In, what, in other words, how, like for me, for example, uh, my mother read me from, she introduced me, she read me from Hilbert's stories of the Bible when I was little. My mother didn't go to church, you know, but back then people read the Bible and all that didn't go to church. And so she read me stories out of the Bible. That was my first introduction. And then my grandfather uh, used to pick me up and take me to Sunday school up until uh, my mom married my stepfather. But he picked me up regularly every Sunday, took me to Sunday school. Well, then after my mom married my stepfather and we moved and there was no background in religion. In fact, in my real father, if there's anybody that has any connection with religion, I didn't know about it. I have no experience with anybody in that family ever going to church or even talking about religion. So that was the introduction, but it came from family. All right, then my grandfather had a policy that wherever we moved, we knew that we wouldn't be there very long before a preacher came knocking on our door because he would contact a preacher and tell them to come invite us to service. Now, I went to church, and I was eventually, after I graduated from high school, I was converted in a church in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. But why was I there in that church in the first place? Did I, did I go looking for that church? I was there because I loved my grandfather. You see, my grandfather, uh, he, was, he bought me my first car. A senior in high school, he just went out and bought me a, a car and, and, and gave it to me. He, uh, he was always, the, my, uh, for years, the favorite male in my life. And so when I went to church, I had no burning desire to go to church. But I loved my grandfather, and I knew it meant something to him. And, and I knew that when he came to see us that summer, coming from Texas up, he was going to want to know if I'd been to church. You know. And so I went. And then what happened then was that I became very, the congregation, I was very fortunate. It was a very good congregation, and there were people that took an interest in me, and then some months later I was a Christian. But the point is, I did not reach down on my own and just pick up a Bible and start reading it. And I did not on my own just go to the church building. And I have never responded to an in, a stranger knocking on my door. Now, over the years, when I was going through high school, I visited church services on several occasions. Without exception, every time, it was a friend that invited me. Okay, now, what about you? Uh, anybody here that became a Christian as a result of a stranger knocking on your door? 
Did you just drive down the road and respond to the sign that the church had out in front of its building? Betty? When you found that out, what did you feel? I couldn't believe it. I said, you suppose that's just from just taking him when he was a kid? Because I don't know that, you know, I, yeah, his parents didn't go. That's right. His dad was a doctor in World War One, and he was sick all the time. And the mother just was overwhelmed with everything. And I don't know what other influences he might have had after that, but I'd, all, I'd love to talk to him in Sydney because I that just shows what is taking a child. Right. You put a concept in the mind, and also, obviously, there was a feeling for you. I don't believe people realize the impact on, on little children. Um, when I look back through school, all the teachers I had, there was one that stands out. Is my fifth grade teacher. To this day, she's the only one that I even remember all the way through elementary school. Well, whether she was that much better teacher than the others, I really can't remember. I don't remember the lesson plans or anything like that, you know. But she stands out as my favorite of all the teachers. She could have taken me to church anytime she wanted to. What do you think was special about her? She liked me. At least she conveyed that to me. For, for whatever reason, uh, I found myself saying, hey, this she likes me. And I never felt that. She was the first teacher from kindergarten up that I felt that, that, that she actually liked me as a person and she showed an interest in me. Uh, when my grandfather took me to church as a child, the lady I had uh, for a Bible class teacher, she liked me. I mean, that's what she conveyed to me. And so when we sat in the sermons, the sermons bored me out of, the, out of my mind. I didn't know what was going on. I went because of her and her class. And so please my grandfather and her class was very interesting. And I can still remember her taking the cloth board and putting the characters up and telling the story. And that also the fact that she liked me. And see, we were very poor. We lived in the projects, a uh, uh, single mom and, and three children. And so several times during the year, she would show up at our house with clothes. She had a son that was a little bit older than I was and she would be bringing me clothes that he had outgrown, and she would check with mom and offer to help in some way. And so that was in my mind. That is a positive. What are we talking about when we say things like that? We're talking about sowing seed uh, in people's mind. And you think back through the years, and even now, there's two types of people that really stand out in your mind. The really good that really took an interest in you and are really bad. The others are just there. But those that took an interest in you in some way that seemed to like you, and then the really bad, uh, they stand out. And the others are just people that are there. And the sad thing is that most people fall in, in that category. You know, there's just people that are there. 
Okay, so am I safe in saying that everybody here is a Christian primarily because of a friend or family member that, that first introduced you to Christianity and to Christ? Okay, now, if that's the case with us, then what makes us think that there are people out here, and by the way, even in Kingston, even in the Bible Belt, uh, I think... Uh, uh, the man you had at a meeting right before I came that did such a good job, what was his name? Parson. Doug Parson. Okay, uh, I came to one of Doug Parsons, and by the way, I've heard all his tapes since I've been here. Uh, and there's a statistic that, statistic that stood out in my mind. Right here in Kingston and towns in the Bible Belt, what percentage of the population did he say really didn't go to church anywhere, period? 50. That's right. He said right here in Kingston and all over that mark it down, even though you call it the Bible Belt, 50% of the people are really not going to church anywhere. That's 50% of the, of the total population. Well, these people that are not going to church anywhere, do you think they're studying the Bible at home? Do you think that prayer is a part of their life and things like that? Uh, do you think they have things in their life that would cause them to think in the direction that we're talking about? then surely we don't think then, based on our experience that, and what we read, that just because a stranger knocks on their door and says, uh, we'd like to invite you to our Bible study, or Paul Cook's having a Bible study at his house, you know, big deal, you know, uh, and or something like that, that he's probably not going to respond. In fact, he probably doesn't even feel comfortable uh, with, with the church. He's not going to sit down and pick up the Bible himself. I mean, God forbid. Uh, Think about this person who's not read in the Bible, and you pick it up. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so -and -so begat so-and-so, and this happened to fulfill what the prophet said. And all. How much of that is he relating to? And then you've got some virgin giving birth. Uh, you know, that, how much of that? Sounds like a fairy tale uh, right off the top of your head, and if you come from the world that, uh, that is out there. So what does that say, then, if we're going to reach these people? Okay, there's, you're going to have, we're going to have to make some friends of people outside this church building. And, and people outside of the uh, church, in fact, it's not just the church building, but see, people that are Christians, even if you have friends outside of your particular group, they're generally strong Christians in another group. You know, because you have the same, I mean, let's face it, the, the, the core of the gospel we're in agreement on. We, we spend a lot of time talking about the differences, but the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, salvation by grace through faith, uh, godliness in life, eternal life, remission of sins, uh, the very core of the gospel, Bible believers are in, a, in agreement. And therefore, when, when I meet a friend over here who may be a Baptist or, or, or he's in the Church of God or some other group like that, he and I will probably become friends very easy because we have the same things in common. And so I'm saying that even our friends outside of the family tend to be people who are already people who believe in Jesus and are already striving in. And we don't tend to 
have a lot of friends among those that we've just been talking about. Uh, Barbara? I might say, just comment before that goes on about um, Betty's experience with the child. I think that a lot of children, a lot of parents are willing to let their children, and these kids, especially the kids that we work with down at the center, they are wonderful for inviting their friends. And if we could just, you know, encourage them to do that, a lot of times parents are so busy, especially the wives working those children grow up and a lot of times parents become interested because children. So I think if, if we just keep in mind that yes, it inconvenience us a little maybe to go over and pick up Johnny, but Johnny grows up and, and uh, you know, you can really have an influence that way and look at it from the standpoint of in years to come, there certainly can be some reaping from doing that kind of thing. And, and if we tell our children, you know, invite your friends, you know, that that pleases Jesus, and yes, we will pick them up if they'll come with you. I think that's that's um, faucet of evangelism that we neglect that would could really be fruitful. Okay, the children, I agree. The, by the way, there's uh, uh, of the various groups that do the best in this area from the reading I've done. In fact, I've got the last couple of books I've read in this area. Uh, was put out by the Southern Baptist Association. And you know what they consider the most effective part of their evangelism program? Their Bible school. Uh, and you check the attendance at a typical Baptist church and look at what happens at, at, at Bible classes and also church. They don't have the difference uh, that a lot of groups have, but they, they look at it uh, as that's where evangelism starts, is right there in the Bible class. And you're right. There are any number of people out there that if, now you have to have a connection, if they regard you as a friend, that maybe they would not come to service, but they would allow their child. And if you've got children of the same age, or you just are nice to that child, uh, one experience I may have already related in talking to you before, I don't know, but the experience Barbara and I had with Cam and uh, Jessup, uh, little girl, alcoholic parents, uh, everybody told us when they got there, you got to watch out for her. You know, she'll mistreat your kids. She'll break into your house and, and all this kind of thing. And so we just decided that we was going to take Cam in. And so when Barbara went out with treats for our children, whoever our children were playing with, they all got treats, and Cam was there, and so Cam got treated too. And we, we brought her in the house. We treated her in a special way. We showed, we built up a relationship, and the next thing you know, we're taking Cam to, to Bible class. And she was ready to go every time. A little bit of psychology with that. We told Cam, Cam, Cam would egg people's houses when they leave, etc. So what we did was we said, Cam, would you watch our house while we're gone and, and, and not let anybody bother? And boy, she set camp outside and nobody dared. The neighbors <laughs> would tell us that when we left, that Cam was down there watching our house. And, uh, and she watched our kids, you know, that she was, uh, she just took it by herself. Uh, she was about four, 13. Yeah. And when we left there, she went to church with us all the time we was there. And when we left there, we just regularly got long distance calls from Cam calling us and talking and we'd talk with them. And then we got a call from the phone company. <laughs> And she had been putting all those calls on other people's numbers. <laughs> and, and we was wondering how she was doing this. But every week, regularly, several times, long distance calls from Cam wanting to talk. But the point is, she became attached to our family and, and became part of the family. 
there is no doubt in my mind that if we had stayed, and I don't know what happened now, Cam would be a Christian. Uh, the people are out there if we're looking in the right place. But now think, and think with me on just this. What is a good prospect to you? What do we think of as a good prospect? Somebody like us. Somebody like us, got a job, uh, family and everything like that. In reality, who are the good prospects? Who, by the way, who's, who's, if you're a car salesman, who's a good prospect to buy a car? Somebody that's, <laughs> he's getting tired of the repair bills. Uh, you're right. Uh, these guys driving around with a car they just bought in the last six months or a year, they're not good prospects, are they? But, but the very tight people, then, then who are really the best prospects? before everybody had every kind of insurance imaginable and, and we had all the benefits that our jobs give us and everything like that, people had to rely on one another and it actually was conducive to developing friendships because uh, I knew that if I got sick at the time of harvest, uh, somebody might have to come in and help. Uh, or if my house burned down, there was no fire insurance, uh, the neighbors might have to pitch in and, and help do it. And, and so it was conducive. We live in an, an environment that among the middle class promotes self-sufficiency, which is not necessarily good from a spiritual standpoint. And then, pardon? Right. All right, now, let me uh, give you one other, another one here. And by the way, we, we've mentioned that obviously this is the primary way that we have people that are going to come to our Bible study or they're going to come to church or, or something of this nature. Uh, what does that say for you and for me if we're going to, if we're going to have friends out here that are in the world? What, what's it going to involve on our part? Effort and time. And I'm going to tell you something. Here's what happens to us. If we don't watch ourselves, we can be more like the Mennonites than we first century Christians. Uh, these people don't use bad language, don't they? they? They use bad language. A lot of them drink. Uh, they, they've got marital problems. They fuss and they fight and they, and they argue. They're suffering all the problems that you would expect people to suffer who are not walking with Jesus. It's that simple. And so that uh, we've got children, and therefore we want to make friends with, with kids who are with people that are teaching their children not to curse and not to do those things and all. And so that, that's natural, and that's, that's normal. 
But I'm saying that to have friends there, that there is going to have to be the time involvement in uh, making acquaintances. And we're going to see that Jesus really had some very strong things to say in this direction. I mean, just think about it. He had some very strong uh, things to say in, in, in this direction. But it means that I'm going to have to get out of my comfort zone and begin to make friends out there. And I'm going to have to sit down. I personally don't believe that good things just happen. I just I think that good things happen through planning. I don't believe it's any accident that 3,000 people obeyed the gospel on Pentecost. I believe that there were uh, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years tied up in God's providential planning for that one big day. And the same thing with the, the other events that uh, we've been noting on Wednesday night. Did Jesus do some planning or did he just go around teaching? Plant, trained, sent them out two by two, as taught them as they were able to hear. He, he definitely, uh, he, it's no accident he spent most of his time in Galilee. What was it? There's no, no accident there at all. And so he definitely looked at the situation. And so if I'm going to have friends uh, among those people who do not go to church and who are not in Christ, who is going to have to initiate this friendship? Are they going to initiate it with me? I mean, after all, I live over here in the Evelyn Estates and it's a nice subdivision and all and these the people that I'm talking. How many of them are going to come over and initiate our friendship with me? They're not. And then the, the people that are the well-to-do. By the way, some of the most neglected people, as far as evangelism is concerned, are, are the well-to-do that are not Christians. We just assume that they couldn't be interested because they've got real nice houses, cars, jobs, and, and everything like that. They're not going to initiate. The kind, and not only that, they think that the, I probably don't feel, in other words, they don't feel comfortable sometimes around me because they think maybe I look down on them for their drinking or, or, or whatever it is that they do. So we're going to have to then develop a frame of mind where we honestly want to make friends. And, and what I think we're going to find out is these things here will take care of themselves if we first make friends. Uh, we're, we're gonna, uh, in fact, all the various objections that we have can be handled just easy, I believe. The, the biggest thing is actually the making of friends uh, of people that are not Christian. Okay, and what are some things that uh, you can think of? Where do you go and, to find these people? <laughs> you know, okay, mean, they, really, they're I mean, not in our world, are they? No, I mean, uh, and I'm at the house most day, all day, mm -hmm. you know, and I mean, do I just go wander out on the street and, you know, I mean, that sounds stupid, but I mean, it's a real that's thing. A, that's I mean, a good, right, that's a good point, and Jean was mentioning something similar earlier, Betty. Well, it makes me think that maybe we need to go out and join clubs. Civic clubs. Civic clubs, you know, men's rotary and so forth, and I know a girl, a woman, that the church back in Missouri that sold Amway or something like that, and she would job hop. I mean, she wasn't needing the money for the job, but she'd get a job in a fast food place just to make contact. Okay. And sell for Amway, and then she'd maybe work there six months, she just quit and go work someplace else. And that's her contact. And I thought, maybe that's Okay, Betty, what you're talking about, I was, I was sitting here looking at Carl and thinking when uh, Carl was at Tennessee Tech, uh, 
he and Sandy, of course, that's where they met at the student center there and, and got married. But one of the things Carl did was really impressive to me. Everybody that goes to college wants their own apartment. All my kids, they want to get an apartment, don't want to stay in the dorm. Uh, Carl was a student director there and, uh, at the uh, Christian Student Center, and he chose to live in the dorm. Not because he wanted to live there, not because he wanted to, but he chose to live in the dorm so he could be a part of Bible studies in the dorm and could be a witness for the Lord. In that, and so he purposely chose the dormitory to live for that. And that was just, see, that's still in my mind. That was, a, I thought that man, it is very commendable uh, to do that. And so what you're saying is, we're going to have to look at things and, and put forth effort. I'll give you an example of uh, just a recent little thing that, and by the way, sometimes you can do things you really enjoy. Uh, just recently, Scott started getting the uh, gymnasium over here at the middle school on Thursday night. And so we talked about it, uh, those of us that like to play a little basketball to get together, but we wanted it to be something that, where we could reach out. And so the guys have been specifically inviting people that are not Christian, and like uh, Mike Dowdy had his uh, brother there uh, a couple of times, and then, let's see, the last time, what is it, two or three there that were, that were not Christians that were there at the practice? And so we want those people to come in and see, I get to meet them, and they get to meet me as, a, as just another guy that's out there playing basketball, and, and you get to talk with them and cultivate a relationship. Well, let's say that here is this person that comes in, and he plays ball, and, and Todd becomes acquainted with him, and for the first five or six or so sessions, we're just becoming acquainted and developing a friendship, and then Todd invites him to maybe a, a luncheon that we're having on Wednesday night uh, before a Bible study. Or he says that, listen, uh, we have a Bible study at such a that Well, then he's going to size it up and think, hey, all these guys want to do is convert me. He's going to feel uncomfortable around us. So I believe that we have to first get them there, then we have to cultivate just friendships, and then uh, we go from there. All right, what are some other activities you can think of? Uh, Penelope? Okay, now Penelope said we start on a small scale, and here she is over here, and this is her uh, subdivision over there, right? What is the name of yours? Stowe Station. Stowe Station. All right, uh, 
Uh, Tim and I over here in Evelyn Estates, uh, Alba and Todd are over here in, uh, in an area, and, and Mark, and then all of you all live in certain areas around Kingston, right? So then we say we start out in a small area, but what if what Penelope is already doing there, what if each of us do that in our areas? And then what, what happens to the entire area? We began to cover. Well, then what if we multiply the number that we've got here, and let's say we can get twice this many people in the congregation that is doing that kind of thing. Do you think over a period of year, of a year's time that we're going to begin to make some friends and acquaintances uh, uh, outside of the church and that are, I think so. Do you think that if we did that, that there would be those times where through vacation Bible school and other special activities that we could get children and also adults and all to come that, uh, that we could have more Bible studies and all? I think so. I, I really believe that if the, if the effort is put forth in that way, and then all of us have our own individual circle. Tim? Yeah, I want to make a, a quick comment about uh, uh, sticking with it, I guess. I think uh, when we talk about Christian evangelism, and if, you know, I make, I make a friend of someone, or a friend of someone that's not a Christian, I invite them to church, sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no, and they get to a decision point, and, and, and they say, what you offer has a lot of but I choose not to. I think we still have to be committed to the friendship or else we, we will really reap uh, much harm. Uh, the way I think about it is, is this person may have decided not to at this time. Okay. But, but I think we, we've always got to be committed that if we're going to go out and, and, and friend these people for the purpose of evangelizing them, we can't stop befriending them if they choose Okay, now, Tim, in the situation you pose, here is this person, and, and they said that, yes, that I'm just not interested right now, and so you back off, but yet you keep the friendship. What would be the next time that you think in that person's life that might cause them now to reach the point? What's, what's liable to happen? Well, I think a couple of things. If, if they hit the skid, so to speak, if they go through a particularly trying time, that might be one. Or if they if they are befriended by yet another person that that perhaps has closer can have closer ties or more in common, I think either one of those two things. So if I meet this person and they already have a good relationship with you and they like you, and now they find out that you and I are coming from the that I've got an advantage that I wouldn't have had. Okay, and then as we look at these lives, think of some things that every human being goes through that makes them more concerned about their eternal destiny, more concerned about their relationship with God. Name some of those things. All right, age itself. Age itself is a factor. God knew what he was doing when he put us in dying bodies. Young people think they're going to live forever. Uh, that, and so, that right, age itself is, uh, is, uh, is a motivator. Name another one. Illness. Uh, here's this person that thinks he's invincible, and, and then all of a sudden there is some disease, either it may not be his or hers, it may be their mates, it may be their child. And, and then they find out that money won't handle this. Here is something that's going to have to be dealt with. And so here again is this perfect opportunity. I mean, 
when Jesus was teaching, who are the people they just kept bringing to Jesus? Sick people. And then he healed their diseases. He, he knew the real problem was sin, okay? But people have two needs. They've got their real need and they got their felt needs. Now, most people out here in the world, contrary to what we as Christians believe, are not walking around feeling a lot of guilt for their sin. And I'm here to tell you I didn't. I didn't just walk around feeling guilty because you've got to believe you're doing a lot wrong, and I didn't look at myself as that bad a person. You know, I was just as good as the other guys I ran around with and better than most. And so I didn't feel that. But I had felt needs, okay? People have needs that they feel that are in this direction. Sickness, what's another one? They're aging, sickness. Trauma like loss of job. Or Tra loss of job. Uh, in fact, for most men, the loss of a job is, is worse than a lot of sicknesses. I mean, that, is, uh, that can send a man into depression or something quicker than anything. Uh, that, uh, that's a big factor. What's another factor? Divorce. Divorce. Tremendous, Joe. That's right. What, we're, what Joe said is exactly where people have needs that they feel. We know the real problem is sin that everybody needs. But I believe that we have to deal with their felt needs to make them receptive for this over here. And, and so, and I believe this is what Jesus did. He comes in and so that you may know that I can forgive sins, you know, do such and such. He wanted to get them to the realization that the most important thing in their life was to get to remission of sins. But he had to deal with the things that was real to them, and that was the fact they were sick, and they had diseases, and their loved ones were sick, and their loved ones had diseases. And here's this, here's this widow that her only child is dead, uh, and, and, and they're going to bury him, you know, and that's, that's a need she's, she's dealing with. And so they see in that environment, and so the very person that Tim is talking about, sooner or later it comes to all of us. Somebody in the family gets sick, somebody dies, somebody's in an accident, there's a divorce, and that ought to send all kinds of lights off in our mind, that this person, through the providence of God, is now maybe much more receptive. Than, and by the way, and it also tells us in meeting people, when you meet people that are in any of these categories, there's your top-notch prospect right there. If they're going through a divorce or, or they're having some problem, uh, they are the person that has some need and needs some help. Mark? I think that we need to, to develop a mindset to always looking for contacts. I know if you take, you take a, a salesperson, uh, I mean, everybody's a potential contact. You know, I mean, they're all, always looking, they're always looking for that, you know, that, that contact. Um, like, for instance, I know people we have here and we've got enough people 
play ball. We don't need anybody else. Right. Uh, I mean, it's just, I mean, everything we do is going to have to be, be you know, our, our mind is going to have to be, be focused in a way that, that we're all, always looking. I think you're exactly right. We're going to have to be evangelistic minded. And in fact, I, as you were talking, I, I know that when I go over here, I've told Barbara several times that I've had some of the most, I've met more people over there, just strangers. Uh, the times I go over there, I go over at the pull-up bar and, and there's some other guy over there and we get to talking. I find out he's got a child in the school where I've been doing some volunteer teaching. We get in a long conversation. Our Barbara and I, we ran into members of the church here and, and someone who maybe we're wanting to talk to because of a particular reason. We've run into them on the walk and stopped and talked. And same within the neighborhood. We, we've met a number of our neighbors just simply out walking like that. But you're right. You can pass up the opportunity if you're just thinking of the activity. Uh, what about somebody that needs help when we're driving our car? And the tendency is to think that uh, somebody else will take care. And, and yet there's the opportunity. And, and we ought to be thinking from an evangelistic uh, standpoint, hey, maybe that person's not a Christian, you know, and here's an opportunity to, to make a real good contact. Uh, Mike? I've got a question about God's love. I know that God loves all men, women, whatever, equally. Correct? Correct. Okay. I know that God hates sin. You have a sinner that's living in sin until he leaves this world. I feel that that sinner still has a chance to get back into God's grace. Sure. Because God knows that person's soul. Can he be so bad that God doesn't love him? What, what we do, like you said, is we get in the comfort zone to where we're trying to keep our families and our children and so on away from this sin because we don't want that sin to influence us or those people. So I guess my question is, is do we need to change that attitude? I think we do, Mike. We need to change the attitude. Uh, when the Pharisees criticized Jesus for associating with the publicans and the harlots, there's something they failed to see. The harlots and the publicans were not leading Jesus to be that way, but he was leading them to God. And, and I think that it's one thing to uh, be led ourselves, uh, but if we're in that situation and we are the light and the leaven and the salt, uh, I think our entire attitude needs to be changed. I'm not saying we shouldn't be protective towards our children uh, and things like that. I, I definitely believe in that. But I really believe that you can operate in the world uh, and make friends in the world and that you can be a light. In fact, there are a lot of beautiful lives within the church that are really not a light in the world because the world don't know that person is as good as, as they are. That uh, uh, the, some of the goodness that we reserve for the church, like uh, funerals and, and sickness and things like that of helping people out, I believe some of that ought to go to people that are in these people in the world. When somebody in their family dies or there's something like that, you see, they don't have the church that's coming there with all the refreshments and all. They don't have it. And by the way, whenever we do that for a member, you're doing it more than just for the member. I guarantee you that member has members of the family who are not Christian, and they see the church 
respond with food and con and and that's an opportunity right there i mean they see that and it leaves a very positive feel in their mind but i really and mike another thing on, on that in our church all our activities revolve around the building and you take the average working person by the time he goes to service sunday night wednesday night sunday morning he's got a boy's yard and take care of his car and, and clean the dog and all that kind of stuff just like everybody else doesn't have a lot of time and i think we're going to have to work our schedules in, in such a way that we put emphasis in there there let me give you an example of what one group did in in chattanooga and i thought uh, you know it, it, from everything i read afterwards it was going great they took a survey of their people and they found out that the the uh, service that people considered to be the least effective and the least desired was Sunday night. You see, people had already been to service Sunday morning, they'd had Bible clients, they'd been to worship service, and then they just get a few hours break here and they're back, and so only about half of them come back, and it, it tends to be the time where it said most people would like just to have the, the evening at home. So what they did, they did away with their Sunday night service, but they started the service on Saturday night, that they called a, a seeker service. And so what they did, they number one, it was a cardinal sin to come in with a tie on or a suit. And so they had Bible studies on Sunday night, and then they had a fellowship where they, with the food brought in, and they encouraged their members to invite their neighbors and friends and all to just a Saturday night activity, and they'd come there and they'd eat and they'd have a Bible study. They said their attendance was far greater than it had been on Sunday night. They had many more visitors than they had at any other service. And then they was able to do that because they had given up. Uh, it didn't take any more time. They, they were now not meeting on Sunday night. Well, I'm not saying do that. I'm saying that is what one group did in making an effort and, and saying, hey, on Sunday night, people from the world are not coming into our service. And if we did something like this on Saturday and we, we dressed in jeans and common clothing and, and, and we had uh, some food and refreshments and then we had a Bible class and classes and a discourse, then I think we could reach out in the world and they were doing it uh, through that, that kind of thing. Uh, Donna? I know that when we look at this, like this person probably wouldn't be considered as a top prospect, but some, what suggestion would you have for someone that you care about that had a lot of contact with the church at one time in their life and only sees it as rigid and um, is not interested, but yet leads, leads a moral life that you know that they're unhappy. What would be your suggestion as to how to help that person? All right, did everybody hear what Donna said? Here's a person that that you know she thinks would be receptive, and they they but they've had contact with the church in the past, they think of us as a very rigid, legalistic group that harps on rules and regulations and things like that all the time and falls short on the sympathy and the emotional end and, and things like that. Well, are there people out there who have had contact with us in the past that might have that kind of feeling about us? Well, I'd say this church. Okay. In there, terms of in general, I think we have a major stereo. Okay. We've got a... As you're explaining this, put in the, when we give up. I, that's something I want to know. I'm going to okay, we'll, we'll do That's a good point, Mike. Now, the stereotype. Now, let me say something, and I don't feel I'm being, I'm just my observation, because I haven't been here through the years. That stereotype is not true of this church. No. And it's sad that some people think that it is not true of this church. Uh, 
the church is a, a good example, and there are several things that we are doing, I think, to overcome what you said, Donna. I believe our benevolent program, where people know that we will help out with food and clothing, anybody. Uh, the fact that we allow people to use our family center. And, and I think that the, some of the, the various attitudes that I hear among the people here, and by the way, I'm not saying this just because uh, Emily is here. I think a big factor uh, in that has been Danny through the years. I, I really believe that in many ways in, in that area that it's, I, I see Danny's personality. And I don't think that that stereotype uh, applies here at all. And I know the elders that, that talked with me initially before I came here and what I saw and all. So what we've got to convince is this is a non-denominational congregation. And we're, we're converted to Christ, you know, and, and that we've got to make it clear that that stereotype simply does not apply. Uh, Todd? Was, uh, what I've heard is I think the damage was done five years ago. What I'm saying, I can go out and find the That's the projection. That's the projection that I think a lot of people still care about our church. Yeah. Reputation proceeds. Church Christ is known all over the world. Well, I guess all over the United States. Okay, now let me ask you this. Uh, think about it. I agree that that stereotype is out there, and it's not true of this church. I mean, I, that's one thing. And by the way, the first few people we met walking around, Barbara, hit us with that, didn't it? There was one group was... Uh, uh, a Baptist couple, and they said, man, we remember when the Church of Christ and the Baptists debated and all, and we, that's the first thing they thought of. You know, they were feeling us out, is uh, the feelings that we have there. But let me ask you this. Think about Jesus. Were there things that people said about Jesus that were inaccurate, that he had to overcome in order to communicate? Name some of them. What are some things they said about him? Okay, Paul was a babbler. He was, he was a wine bibbler, a drunk, associated with sinners, and something else. He was possessed of demons. So here's Jesus out teaching, and people that have never met him have heard from all these religious folk, hey, this guy's a wine bibbler, and he's a glutton, and he's possessed of a demon, and he breaks the Sabbath day, and he associates with sinners. And so you get all these feelings, but what happened when he met Jesus? He changed. So I believe that the way we overcome that is is we just continue not being that way. Example. Right. We got to show the example. That's we we. I think the biggest thing is is the example. If you go out and think of in contact with someone that's not a Christian, man, they're going to scrutinize you. And sure. I think if, you know, if you make one mistake, to them it is amplified ten times. I agree with Todd. There's been times where I've been with Christians that I would be embarrassed. And what I mean is that when you go into the store and, and maybe there's a difference on the buy or sell of a product or something like that, 
there are some areas there where we turn the other cheek and go the extra mile because we're thinking, hey, if this guy's not a Christian, you know, it may be that even, uh, you know, that it may be best here. And I think in the, the same way when we're, when we're dealing with people in life, uh, whether it's the people that pick up our garbage, uh, the people at the gas station, that we ought to walk in there thinking, hey, I'm the Bible that that person is seeing. And that when we do business with them, we ought to think in that way. And actually it becomes, a, if we begin, become really evangelistic oriented, can you see how that it's going to make us better people? Because, and by the way, it's sort of like rearing children. I think rearing children helps to make you a better person because you become more conscious of what they're seeing. Uh, and, and I think being around others, but right. Uh, as an entire congregation, uh, I, one incident that stands out in my mind of somebody told one of the members here that uh, so-and-so uh, on the job used very bad language. And they was concerned because they was interested in reaching this person. And they were surprised that this individual would, would tell suggestive stories and use bad language and all. Well, that, that kind of thing will do us enough harm that it takes 10 or 12 other good things to try and compensate for them. We need to get that point across to, to all of our members. Barbara? I think Tom's comment about our reputation as being unfeeling to people, and I think that's what we're study the word, etc. So the kingdom um, kind of swung yeah. the other way, and we don't express our feelings. We're very reluctant to say amen or that kind of thing. And I think that that would be good if just those of us that are here, you know, trying to, to um, it, we do feel. I do. <coughs> um, and I know other people do feel, but we are reluctant to express our emotions. Like I said, we don't talk about uh, what Jesus has done for us and, and we're reluctant to say amen in the services, etc. I think we all need to work on that because we do have that reputation and I need to... Yeah. yeah, I think in areas, if I feel that somebody feels something about me that's not accurate, then I'm probably going to go overboard trying to counteract that. Let's go ahead and take a break. before we. Uh, Steve?
Now, to show you how effective we are in projecting that, I'm studying with a person now that has a background, you know, in the church. And we've been studying, and been, it's been going on for a number of weeks now, and one of the statements this person made to me says that uh, he agrees what's right and all, and he says that, uh, that, but when I do it, I'm going to do it right. In other words, when I, that I won't be there until I can give it 100% and all. And so what we did, we turned over and read Romans 7 and 8. That, uh, you know, you're, if you're waiting till you can give it 100%, you're never going to be here. And, and you're never going to do it completely right. And you can have an alcohol problem, you can have a drug problem, just as easily as you can have a, a problem with temperament or something else. And the church, I don't quote Land Landers very often, but I quote her on this because I think she hit the nail on the head. Uh, the church is like a hospital with, with, with a lot of sick folk in it that have admitted they're sick. And they're in the process of getting well. And, and we're not there as the perfect people, but we, we recognize the perfect Savior. We're in the process of getting well. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has a lot to teach us. Uh, I mean, where people can come in with problems and, and feel accepted, and yet they can grow and overcome those problems. I, I really believe that we ought to be more like uh, groups like Alcoholic Anonymous. In fact, if we were what we should be, I don't know that groups like that would have ever even come into existence in the first place. The first thing you've got to do in Alcoholics Anonymous is admit you're wrong. Okay. And then other people are ready to accept you. And that group of Alcoholics Anonymous will accept you because you've said, I'm wrong and I want help. Right. And we don't do that. Okay, and we ought to be saying to all our visitors, you see us in a suit and tie we look nice, but we're sinners. hope you die on a good day. <laughs> when you just haven't had a fight with your wife or something. Uh, we, we try to play like Moses. We try to offer all kinds of excuses for not doing what we know we ought to do. Too. Right. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break and we come back. <laughs>